Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 2 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. From the Fall of Mortimer to the outbreak of the struggle with France, the Scottish War, 1330-1337. When the sinister figures of Roger Mortimer and Isabella of France disappeared from the scene, England entered on a more honorable and fortunate period of her history. Everything was now in favor of the young king, and it was to be many years before he forfeited the popularity which he had won by avenging his father's murder and freeing the realm from its shameful bondage. Edward was a handsome, courteous, and generous prince, largely gifted with all the outward graces that win men's hearts. He was an accomplished knight, as distinguished in the tournament in his youth as on the battlefield in his riper years. He loved splendor and display, was a mighty builder, a friend of music and the arts, and a patron of literary men. But though he did not show any of his father's weakness, he was deeply tainted with the moral failings of his ancestor, Henry III, selfishness, and a chronic incapacity to keep his promises or to pay his debts. All through his life he disregarded the noble watchword of his grandfather, Edward I, Pactum Serwa, abide by the plighted word, and displayed an entire want of sensibility of the sanctity of private pledges or public treaties. More than once he proved that he could be cruel when provoked. In his later years he was destined to show signs of failing vigor long before his due time, and fell into the power of favorites, male and female, who pandered to his failings and made him even more untrue to the kingly ideal than he had been in early life. His worst fault as a practical ruler was his entire incapacity for understanding finance. He loved the stir and glory of battle and could never be brought to see that war is the most expensive of luxuries, that great armies must be fed and paid as well as put into the field. If he had possessed a sterner soul, he would have grown into a tyrant, but though hot-tempered and domineering, he was neither vindictive nor capable of long-planned and long-enduring schemes of oppression. He was selfish and thoughtless rather than malevolent, and his love of a chivalrous reputation often served him in default of a conscience. England has had many worse kings, and from the constitutional point of view, she fared not unprosperously under him. His ambition and his thriftlessness were always causing him to apply to his loving subjects for new grants of money, and money was not given him till he paid for it by confirming charters and conceding privileges to his parliament. Chapter 3 
In 1330, however, Edward had not developed the baser sides of his character, and his subjects were well satisfied with him. During the early years of his personal rule, the realm was settling down and recovering somewhat of its peace and good governance. In Mortimer's time, disorders of all kinds had been rife, ranging up to the worst forms of open murder and private war. We read, for example, how in 1328 Sir Thomas Wither, meeting his enemy Robert Lord Holland in Henley Wood, near Windsor, fell upon him, slew him, and cut off his head, which he carried off on his spear. In 1329, William de la Zouche tried to make valid his pretensions to some of the Declare estates by raising a great band of his retainers and besieging Kerfilly, the strongest and largest castle of South Wales. We hear of heiresses abducted, manors sacked, and blackmail extorted. Such excesses were put down when there was once more a king who ruled and served as the fountain of justice. The cessation of the Scottish war allowed the much-ravaged northern shires time to recover themselves. Commerce, too, began to revive, though we still hear of many complaints as to the misdoing of French and Flemish pirates on the high seas. There were, however, two outstanding questions which were destined to lead to trouble at no very distant date. The first was a dispute as to the homage due to the French crown for the English possessions in Aquitaine. The elder branch of the old royal house of France had lately died out in the Mayo line, 1328, and Philip of Valois, the representative of a younger stock, now reigned at Paris. Edward was, through his mother, descended from the elder line, and seems from the first to have had some notion of refusing to acknowledge Philip as the rightful tenant of the throne. But he had for the time laid the idea aside, and twice did homage to the new king for his duchy of Aquitaine and county of Ponthieu. Footnote. Ponthieu, a small county at the mouth of the Somme, had come to Edward II through his mother, Eleanor of Castile, whose mother, Joanna, Queen of Castile, had been Countess of Ponthieu in her own right. But the district had been intermittently overrun and occupied by the French. End footnote. Philip, however, was not satisfied with the terms on which homage had been done to him. He proved a bad neighbor, encroached on the borderlands, encouraged the Gascon barons to make appeals to Paris, and refused to surrender the county of Agenois, which had been seized from Edward II a few years before. It seems that he had in his mind the expulsion of the English from southern France, and was biding his time for putting his scheme into operation. For the present, nothing but small bickerings along the frontier resulted from his ill will. A dispute with Scotland was destined to lead to troubles at a much earlier date, and ultimately to involve King Edward in a war with France also. Its origin lay in one of the clauses of the shameful peace of Northampton. Robert I had promised to give back their lands to the unfortunate barons of the English party in Scotland, who had adhered to Edward II, even after Bannockburn, and had been entirely driven out of the realm. But the Bruce died in 1329, and the regents who ruled for his young son David II proved unable or unwilling to carry out this clause of the treaty. 
the estates had been for the most part seized by or granted out to barons of the nationalist party who had no intention of surrendering them to their previous owners whom they regarded as traitors and enemies of their own country accordingly the disinherited as the exiles were called found themselves excluded from the promised lands and wandered disconsolately about england the chief of them were gilbert umfreville earl of angus david of strathbogie earl of athole walter common and henry lord beaumont an english baron who had married the heiress of the great earldom of buchan finding themselves permanently deprived of their rights these nobles plotted to restore themselves by force of arms and sent to france for edward balliol the son of the unfortunate john balliol who had been king of scotland in twelve ninety two through twelve ninety six he like them had much to recover not only had he a plausible claim to the scottish crown but he regretted the broad balliol lands and galloway which his father had lost scotland was known to be divided into factions and ill-ruled by the boy king's representatives by a bold and sudden stroke the disinherited hoped to place balliol on the throne and win back their old baronies and earldoms balliol and his friends therefore began secretly to muster their adherents and to raise mercenary troops their action came to king edward's ears and he very properly refused to allow them to cross the border and sent orders to his wardens of the marches to resist them even by force of arms if they should try to cross the tweed turned back from the land route the adventurers hired ships and embarked at ravenspur on the humba with a little army of five hundred men-at-arms and two thousand foot the rank and file were nearly all english-born and mainly consisted of archers the disinherited landed at kinghorn and fife and marched on perth on their way they were met at the passage of the urn by the regent donald earl of mar with an army at least five times the strength of their own small force nevertheless they won a surprising victory crossing the river by night they attacked the scottish camp the regent came up against them with his host arranged in three heavy columns of pikemen such as wallace had led at falkirk and bruce at bannockburn the invaders ranged themselves on the hillside of duplin Muir, with the men-at-arms dismounted in a solid clump in the centre and the archers in a thin semicircular line on the flanks the scots climbed the hill and attacked the mailed men who stood beneath balliol's banner neglecting the bowmen as unworthy of their notice but while they were pushing the men-at-arms uphill by force of numbers the arrow shower beat so fiercely upon their flanks that they were finally brought to a standstill the slaughter in the side columns was so great that they fell in upon the main column in disorder and stopped its advance every moment that they stood halted brought new losses from the pitiless rain of shafts and at last the great mass broke up and rolled down the hill in rout the disinherited mounted their horses to pursue and made a cruel slaughter of the fugitives among the slain were the regent donald of mar three earls and seventy knights besides many thousands of foot soldiers the blow inflicted by the defeat of dublin was so heavy that balliol had no difficulty in seizing perth and stirling 
and getting himself crowned at Schoon as King of Scotland, while the young David Bruce fled overseas to France and took refuge with King Philip. Balliol at once wrote to Edward III, announcing that he had won back his realm and was prepared to hold it as a fief of the English crown as his ancestors had been wont to do. He offered as an extra inducement to secure King Edward's support to surrender the important and much disputed frontier post of Berwick. The English monarch had summoned his parliament to discuss the acceptance of these terms when news came which put a new face upon affairs. Balliol had lost his realm as quickly as he had gained it. Though a good soldier, he was not himself a man of much mark or influence, and his followers, the disinherited lords, had upset all the internal arrangements of Scotland by violently taking possession of their lost estates. The Bruce's party took advantage of the general unrest and discontent to form a conspiracy. As Balliol lay at Anan, near Dumfries, with but a small guard around him, he was suddenly attacked by John, Earl of Murray, and Sir Archibald Douglas. They fell upon him at midnight, scattered or slew his retainers, and chased him to the gates of Carlisle, December 16, 1332. Immediately risings set in all over Scotland, and the new king's followers were hunted out of the country. Archibald Douglas was installed as regent for the absent David II, and his authority was everywhere recognized. Plundering parties of Scottish moss troopers soon began to cross the Cheviots and resume the raids of the days of Robert Bruce. Edward III had now to choose between David II and Balliol. He was young, enterprising, and ambitious, and much set on avenging the discomfiture he had suffered during the campaign of 1327. Accordingly, he resolved to recognize Balliol as king, to accept his homage and the cession of Berwick, and to restore him to the Scottish throne by force of arms. The recent raids into Northumberland provided him with a plausible casus belli. Accordingly, in March 1333, he gathered a great army and marched for the border. Balliol and his friends, the disinherited, joined him with their retainers, and siege was laid to Berwick. For ten weeks the strong harbour town held out, but at last food grew scarce within the walls, and the garrison offered to surrender if not relieved by the month of July, and gave hostages for the performance of their promise. Before the appointed day, a small body of troops under Sir William Keith slipped between the besiegers' lines and succeeded in entering the place, though they could do nothing to drive off the English. They brought news, however, that the regent was at hand with the whole armed force of Scotland at his back. The governor held that Keith's appearance relieved him from his obligation to open the gates, and held out when the fixed period had elapsed. The English king saw the matter otherwise, and when entrance was still refused him, cruelly hung the hostages in front of the castle gate. Some ten days later the army of succor came in sight. Douglas had brought with him a formidable army of 30,000 men, and the English were forced to choose whether they would fight or raise the siege. Edward left part of his army in his lines to blockade the town and took post with the rest on Halidon Hill, a rising ground three miles north of Berwick, which commands the road from Dunbar and Edinburgh. 
it was a good position with a marshy bottom before it and a line of wood along its brow the king drew up his army in three corps at the head of the slope he himself took the centre his brother john of eltham the right edward balliol the left in each division the men-at-arms sent their horses away and stood on foot in a solid body in the middle while two wings of archers stretched out on each flank of them this was the same array that the disinherited had used at Dublin, and we cannot doubt that the English king chose it on the advice of Balliol and his friends, the victors of the earlier fight. This order of battle proved as effective on the second occasion as on the first. The Scots were forced to attack under pain of seeing Berwick succumb in a few days. Accordingly, the regent formed his host in three heavy columns, just as Donald of Mar had done at Dublin and launched them against the English position. They were much delayed by the marsh, but waded through it and began to ascend the opposite slope. But the arrow shower beat so fiercely upon them that it took them a long time to climb the hill, each party that forced its way to the head of the column being shot down ere it could close. Only at one or two points did the Scots succeed in reaching the brow and getting to hand strokes with the English men-at-arms. They were repelled on each occasion, for their order was lost, and the main body never reached the battlefront. At last they recoiled back to the marsh, the English following them, and making great slaughter of the fugitives. The regent was slain, as were also the earls of Carrick, Menteith, Lennox, Strathern, and Sutherland, with ten thousand of their followers. This disaster came upon them because they had neglected the wise precepts of Robert Bruce, and attacked a strong position, well lined with archers, to whose missiles they had nothing to oppose. July 19, 1333. Berwick surrendered next day, and since no Scottish army was any longer in the field, Edward was able to march into the lowlands unopposed, and replaced his dependent Balliol on the throne. A permanent pacification might perhaps have followed, but for the English king's greed, he bade Balliol sign a treaty ceding to him not only Berwick, but all the border shires of Scotland as far as Edinburgh. Footnote. Namely, the three Lothians, Berwick, Roxburgh, Peebles, Selkirk, and Dumfries. End footnote. The Scots could not tolerate the partition of their realm, and rose again to drive out their new master. Balliol had to fly to Berwick and seek English aid once more, it was given him with an unsparing hand, and he was twice able to reconquer the whole land as far as Perth, 1334-1335. Balliol was still maintaining a precarious hold upon the Scottish crown when a new series of complications began to arise which were destined to draw English attention away from the Scottish war. Philip of France had never ceased to give trouble on the frontier of the English possessions in Aquitaine, he now began to send aid, at first with some pretense of secrecy, but soon with perfect openness to the patriotic party in Scotland. French men-at-arms crossed the North Sea to fight against Balliol, and French privateers cruised along the eastern coast of England, capturing merchant vessels and gradually making trade impossible. David Bruce dwelt at the court of Paris and sent his partisans in the north, promises of continuing aid from his ally. At last, 
rumours reached king edward that considerable squadrons were being prepared at calais and in the norman ports for an actual invasion of england credibility was lent to the report by piratical raids made by parties of french in jersey guernsey and the isle of wight it was obvious that if edward continued to bestow all his attention on scotland he might ere long find himself attacked in the rear thirteen thirty six accordingly edward set to work to face the prospect of war with france and began to send ambassadors to the emperor louis of bavaria and the princes of the netherlands to secure alliances with them against king philip by the promise of great subsidies he bought the aid of the dukes of brabant and gilders and the counts of holland and hainault he also negotiated a league with the flemish cities who were greatly discontented with their ruler louis count of flanders a devoted vassal and supporter of the french king the flemings had no wish to make war on england with whom they transacted an immense trade buying the fine english wool and making it into cloth which they sold all over northern europe when count louis seized and imprisoned all the english merchants he could lay hands on october thirteen thirty six his subjects were so enraged with him for stirring up war that they entered into correspondence with king edward and offered to aid him even against their own feudal lord the lead in the rising was taken by jacob van atevelde the famous brewer of ghent a wealthy citizen who had turned demagogue and ruled the guilds of his native town with a despotic sway by means of his ready tongue and his strong will the count's power in flanders was small compared with that of his turbulent subject emboldened by the knowledge that he would not lack allies on the continent edward began to treat the french king much as philip had been treating him for the last four years he gave shelter to robert count of artois a french prince of the royal house who had been driven into exile by his cousin and began to gather together a fleet in order to pay back the late piratical raids on the english coast in october thirteen thirty seven he made war inevitable by laying formal claim to the crown of france and denouncing philip as a usurper it is said that he took this step at the instigation of the flemings who told him that they had sworn allegiance to the king of france and that if he assumed the title it would of course be due to him and not to the representative of the line of valois edward's claim was a poor one he represented that his mother was sister to charles the fourth the last king of the elder line and that he therefore should have succeeded to the throne in thirteen twenty eight rather than philip who was but cousin to king charles table the french succession philip the third ruled from twelve seventy to twelve eighty five his eldest son was philip the fourth who ruled from twelve eighty five to thirteen fourteen philip the fourth's eldest son was philip the fifth who ruled from thirteen fourteen to thirteen sixteen and had a daughter joanna queen of navarre who had a son charles the bad king of navarre his second son was louis the tenth who reigned from thirteen sixteen to thirteen twenty two his third son was charles the fourth who reigned from thirteen twenty two to thirteen twenty eight 
his fourth child isabella married edward the second and their child was edward the third philip the third's youngest son was charles count of valois the father of philip the sixth who reigned from thirteen twenty eight to thirteen fifty his son was john who ruled from thirteen fifty to thirteen sixty four and table the french succession but there was no instance in french history of right to the crown being transmitted by a female and the peers of france had ruled that the nearest male heir should succeed there being no precedent to guide them they based their decision on a text in the salic law a code of the ancient franks which laid down that landed property should go to the male representative of the house the case had never before arisen in france for since the house of capet came to the throne in the tenth century every king had left sons behind him undoubtedly the french had the best right to decide who should reign over them and their voice had unanimously been given in favour of philip edward had practically surrendered his claim when in thirteen twenty nine he had done homage to his cousin for the duchy of aquitaine it was absurd to exhume it eight years later moreover even if it were granted that rights might pass through a female his case was a bad one for his mother's brothers had daughters whose title was better than that of their aunt on edward's principles the rightful king of france should have been charles of navarre the son of the daughter of philip v his mother's eldest brother the claim now asserted was to have the most disastrous results involving england in a lingering war whose last blow was not struck until fourteen fifty three the vain name of king of france was not surrendered even when the last scrap of territory across the channel was lost and continued to be appended to the formal title of the english kings down to the reign of george the third the commencement of the hundred years war had perhaps been rendered inevitable by philip's persistent intrigues and encroachments but it was an ill day for england when king edward formulated his claims to his cousin's crown and so embittered the strife the nation had been rapidly recovering from the effects of the reign of edward the second but it still needed peace and rest the scottish war had not much tried its resources but the bloody and expensive struggle which began in thirteen thirty seven was to prove a far more serious drain upon its resources in his reckless and thriftless management of it king edward was destined to develop all the faults of his character which had hitherto been hidden from his subjects who since halidon hill had worshipped him as the avenger of bannockburn and the best knight in christendom End of chapter two thank you for listening to this episode of all things plantagenet Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.